Now a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjaminite, happened to be there. He sounded the trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bichri. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. When David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to take care of the palace and put them in a house under guard. He provided for them, but did not lie with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. Then the king said to Amasa, Summon the men of Judah to come to me within three days and be here yourself. But when Amasa went to summon Judah, he took longer than the time the king had set for him. David said to Abishai, Now Sheba son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom did. Take your master's men and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and escape from us. So Joab's men and the Kerathites and Pelathites and all the mighty warriors went out under the command of Abishai. They marched out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. While they were at the great rock in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Joab was wearing his military tunic, and strapped over it at his waist was a belt with a dagger in its sheath. As he stepped forward, it dropped out of its sheath. Joab said to Amasa, how are you, my brother? Then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Amasa was not on his guard against the dagger in Joab's hand, and Joab plunged it into his belly, and his intestines spilled out on the ground. Without being stabbed again, Amasa died. Then Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Bichri. One of Joab's men stood beside Amasa and said, Whoever favours Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road. And the men saw that all the troops came to a halt there. When he realised that everyone who came up to Amasa stopped, he dragged him from the road into a field and threw a garment over him. After Amasa had been removed from the road... All the men went on with Joab to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel Beth Makkah and through the entire region of the Berites, who gathered together and followed him. All the troops with Joab came and besieged Sheba in Abel Beth Makkah. They built a siege ramp up to the city and it stood against the outer fortifications. While they were battering the wall to bring it down, a wise woman called from the city, Listen! Listen! Tell Joab to come here so that I can speak to him. He went towards her and she asked, Are you Joab? I am, he answered. She said, Listen to what your servant has to say. I am listening, he said. She continued, Long ago they used to say, Get your answer at Abel, 
And that settled it. We are the peaceful and faithful in Israel. You are trying to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? Far be it from me, Joab replied. Far be it from me to swallow up or destroy. That is not the case. A man named Sheba, son of Bichri, from the hill country of Ephraim, has lifted up his hand against the king, against David. Hand over this one man, and I'll withdraw from the city. The woman said to Joab, His head will be thrown to you from the wall. Then the woman went to all the people with her wise advice, and they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bichri, and threw it to Joab. So he sounded the trumpet, and his men dispersed from the city, each returning to his home. And Joab went back to the king in Jerusalem. Joab was over Israel's entire army. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Kerethites and Pelethites. Adoniram was in charge of forced labor. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, was recorder. Shiva was secretary. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira the Jairite was David's priest. Well, thank you very much for that reading, Joe, and good morning, everybody. Well, perhaps you could finish this uh, famous Bible verse in your head if you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave. For God so loved the world that he gave the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, that whoever believes in them shall not perish, but have eternal life. If you're familiar with the actual sentence in John 3.16, which is probably the most famous verse in the whole Bible, then you may have just experienced a pang of discomfort as I substituted the phrase God's one and only son for the phrase the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. As a character in Poldark used to say, is that fair, is that right, is that proper? After all, God's one and only Son is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, eternal Son of God, who came into the world as a man to save sinners. Can you replace the person of Jesus with a couple of book titles in that sentence and not do him and God's loving plan of salvation and injustice? Well, come back with me to chapter 20 of 2 Samuel to see. This is actually the final chapter of the story of David's kingdom. You'll be able to see that there are a few more chapters to come to finish the book. Those are not in chronological order, but provide a kind of a theological epilogue or reflection on the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And we will return to those chapters at some point in the future. But the long story of David's rise, fall, and restoration, the story of David's kingdom actually concludes, in historical terms at least, with chapter 20, and this chapter is here to hammer home some of the great lessons of the book. It is here, in fact, to announce the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The question for us, as we come to the end of the series and the end of this story, the question for us is, have we understood the message, and are we listening still? 
Well, let's look at the narrative then under the three headings that you'll see on the outline. Firstly, the unstable world of men. In the first three verses, we see some, some fickle men and some sad women. Let's look at the fickle men first in verses 1 and 2. Now, a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. He sounded the trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son, every man to his tent, O Israel. Now, after Absalom's rebellion, we might just read this with a sinking feeling. It's Groundhog Day. Just as we thought David's troubles were over, yet another troublemaker arises and calls for another rebellion. And it feels like we're back to square one. More violence, more bloodshed, and another civil war. Will David ever know peace? A moment's reflection, though, tells us that we shouldn't be too surprised to read this. Psalm 2, which, as we heard, Carl is going to be speaking on next Sunday as a bridge between this and the next series, tells us, doesn't it, that the pattern of human history is of human leaders rebelling against God's king. The New Testament puts this in terms of the Antichrist. The, the Antichrist are those leaders who rebel against God's Christ. And here is Sheba, another Antichrist. You may have noticed, as Joe read, that his name is repeatedly given, not just as Sheba, but Sheba's son of Bikri, and that seems to be a, a reminder that he's from the family of Saul. And here we have one more antichrist in the endless streams of antichrists that populate human history. So if it feels like Groundhog Day, it is Groundhog Day. This is the story of our world. What is perhaps more surprising is the ease with which Sheba, son of Bikri, seems to win the loyalty of the people. Look at verse 2. So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bikri. The reason that's surprising is because if you glance back at 1943, the men of Israel there seem to be arguing the opposite point. As the biggest part of the nation with 10 tribes, they claim 10 shares of the king, even though David's own tribe was Judah. And now Sheba says they have no share, and no one disagrees with them. It may remind us of our own political world, mightn't it? As leaders get put up with great hopefulness and expectation and then replaced with great disappointment. It may also remind us of the shifting loyalties of the people in Jesus' day. One moment singing Hosanna, the very next moment crucify. These men are fickle because that is what humanity is like. Humanity is divided. It takes a miracle to change that. It's helpful to notice more practically, though, that despite the chapter break, there is no scene change between this episode and the end of last week's passage. Notice that the narrator draws the connection by saying that this troublemaker, Sheba, happened to be there. Happened to be where? Well, Gilgal, where there has been this big argument happening between the tribes. And this man, Sheba, now capitalizes on that disunity by blowing the trumpet and saying, let's not have David as king after all. Notice the mention of the word David, son of Jesse, a reminder of where David came from, that ruddy boy who looked after his father's sheep, here is not a king worth following. So Sheba's call has its desired effect, and the men of Israel leave David, and off they go to follow their new leader. And this is bad, isn't it, for David? The unity and loyalty that David seemed to have had turns out to be very shallow, the people fickle and disloyal. 
But it's not all lost because David's own tribe, the people of Judah, now firmly make up their minds to follow him. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. That uh, phrase, stayed with, is, a, is a, a very kind of specific and unusual word in the Hebrew. It's the same word that you find in Genesis 2.24, which describes a man being married to, cleaving to his wife. Here is a group of people who are going to stick with David. So he does have a kingdom after all. It's made up of a small group of followers, a little bit like it was back at the beginning of 2 Samuel. So you have this small, loyal group of followers and a divided kingdom. A division that is going to last a very long time. And it's interesting to note that this is not the last time that Sheba's little ditty about Jesse's son will be heard. We're going to listen out for it. We'll hear it a little bit later on. Well, David now returns to Jerusalem with his loyal followers, and we move from some fickle men to some sad women in verse 3. When David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he'd left to take care of the palace and put them in a house under guard. He provided for them but did not lie with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. Now, we don't have time this morning to discuss the morality or lack of of David having concubines. If you're interested, we did cover that question in the podcast, so have a listen during the week, uh, and we'll cover that question there. The point is that the first thing the narrator tells us David did on his Jerusalem involves these ten women. And how do you feel when you read verse 3? What kind of tone does it strike of David's return to Jerusalem? And how does it compare to that first triumphant uh, arrival in Jerusalem back in chapter 6? It's not good, is it? These ten women, you may remember, David had left to guard his house, 1516. He now puts them in a house under guard. What has happened to those ten women in between? Well, you may remember they've been raped systematically, symbolically by Absalom, a symbolic gesture of his rebellion. And this, you may also remember, has been explicitly prophesied by Nathan in chapter 12 as a result of David's sin. And so what a problem these women are to David. They are in their situation because of his sin and because of Absalom. Well, what can he do with them? What's the right thing to do with these women who he should never have had in the first place and whose lives have now been ruined and violated not once but twice? Well, notice what he does. On the one hand, positively, he protects them. He puts a roof over their head, doesn't send them out on the street, doesn't have sexual relations with them. That's good and right. But on the other hand... Notice the end of verse 3. The only way David knows to deal with them is to shut them up in confinement so that they wear out the rest of their lives, the rest of their lives in this dreary, joyless confinement of widowhood, all personal freedom denied to them. Let me quote from one commentator. He says, So they are doomed for no fault of their own to the weary lot of captives, cursing the day when their beauty had brought them to the palace and wishing they could exchange lots with the humblest of their sisters who breathe the air of freedom. This is not a good return, is it? When God's king returns to his city, it ought to feel better than this. Jesus will liken the day of his return 
to a wedding where the royal bridegroom will come for his bride and there'll be celebration, joy, and feasting, David's return is marked by a lifelong widowhood because of his sin and absence. And here is the point I think we are meant to grasp, that David's kingdom at this point is marked by the sadness of the consequences of sin that cannot be undone. Yes, David can do the right thing with these widows, but he cannot put back the wrong that has been done. David is not good enough or strong enough to put things right. However much he wants to, he is not a king who can wipe away their tears. Secondly, we see the unstoppable forces of evil in 4 to 22. After the little interlude of verse 3, we now turn back to Sheba's rebellion, and this long section again involves a contrast between male and female. We see a violent man and a wise woman, and at the end, we're going to see a very interesting and revealing tussle between the two as David tries to control the unstoppable forces of evil. So let's look at the violent man first in 4 to 15. In verse 4, David directs Amasa, who had been Absalom's commander. We know these names now, thanks to Becky's song, don't we? All these names, beginning with A. And whom David had appointed in place of Joab to go and summon an army from the men of Judah in order to go and nip Sheba's rebellion in the blood. For reasons we are not told, Amasa fails to achieve this, verse 5, in the allotted time. And David now sends Abishai instead, verse 6, with instructions to pursue Sheba before he can do serious damage to the kingdom or escape to some fortified city. Now, Abishai, you may remember, is the brother of Joab, David's fiercely loyal but brutal and unruly former commander, which raises a question that has been lurking at the edge of the narrative so far, which is, where is Joab? He's been a huge character in the book. He's been effectively dismissed by David when David replaced him by Amasa. He's already killed two prominent people against David's will, Abner, Saul's former commander in chapter 3, Absalom in uh, chapter 18. Are you following this, getting all the names? Um, and you can be sure that David and Joab's relationship at this time was extremely frosty as Joab insisted on doing things his own way. But look at verse 7, and you'll see that suddenly Joab is back on the scene. Verse 7, so Joab's men and the Kerithites and Pelethites and all the mighty warriors went out under the command of Abishai. They marched out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. So you see the situation. Abishai is officially in charge, but it's still Joab's men he takes out. And it's Joab, demoted by David, who now dominates the rest of the narrative. And so the focus now moves from the big actions of the army to a detailed close-up account of a one-to-one -one encounter. And it's at this point that we learn who is really in charge, who is really pulling the strings in the kingdom. Trigger alert. As they say, look away now if you're squeamish. It's too late. We've already read it, isn't it? So let's read it again. Verse 8. While they were at the great rock in Gibeon, which, by the way, is a place associated with violence and bloodshed earlier in the book, Amasa came to meet them. Joab was wearing his military tunic and strapped over it at his waist with a belt with a dagger in its sheath. As he stepped forward, it dropped out of his sheath. Joab said to Amasa, How are you, my brother? Then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. 
Amasa was not on his guard against the dagger in Joab's hand, and Joab plunged it into his belly, and his intestines spilled out on the ground. Without being stabbed again, Amasa died. Then Joab and his brother Abisai pursued Sheba, son of Bichri. Here is Joab doing what he does best. A treacherous, cunning, brutal kill. Swift and merciless. Notice at the end of verse 10, he doesn't even blink and he's on his way. And he's now firmly in charge of the pursuit. But before we follow him on that pursuit, we need to pause for a moment, if we can bear to, and consider why are we being shown this violence in so much detail? Well, a couple of reasons. Firstly, this act widens the gap between Joab and David. Amasa is Joab's cousin, and Joab's pretense of affection in this warm greeting, verse 9, along with the word shalom, which is behind the question, are you well, just opens the gap and shows us the sheer nastiness of what is going on. David, you remember, is trying to establish peace between the warring factions of Israel. He's trying to unify this nation of tribes by making peace with former enemies, which is why he appointed Amasa. Meanwhile, Joab is working towards the opposite goal. Joab is on the same side as David, but he's working against the king, undermining his good intentions. He is following a different playbook. And this is why we get that strange little detail of everybody being stunned by the corpse lying in the road. Uh, one commentator I read, because I was really puzzled by this, said, look, it's, it's just like people slow down on the M6 to see an accident. It's just people rubbernecking. I think it's a little bit more than that, because these soldiers have seen dead bodies before. I think the reason is it's because it's Amasa who has been killed. Everybody knew that he'd been appointed the commander, and now suddenly Joab kills him, and so the troops know there is trouble brewing. What is David going to make of this when he hears about it? So the first reason we're given these details is we, we see this widening gap between David and Joab, and that's going to be very significant. Because there are two ways of leading here on view. There is David's way, and there is Joab's way. Which is going to win out in the end, is the question. The second reason we're given so much detail, and we've learned, haven't we, as we've been working through this book, that, that no detail in the narrative is ever there for, for, without a purpose. It's, it's always worth stopping to look at the details and ask why they're there. Well, these details remind us of a disturbing pattern. And that's one of the way the Old Testament writer works, isn't it? He doesn't have underliners, he doesn't have italics. works by repetition, by showing us repeated patterns. And so one of the skills we develop as Bible readers is to notice these repeated patterns and take note of them. So you may, may remember that Joab killed Absalom with these three spears. Remember that? You may also remember back in chapter 3 that Joab killed Abner, Saul's former commander, in a very similar way. He came in for a nice friendly chat, and then there's a surprise stab in the belly. This is Joab's way of working. Asahel, Absalom, now Amasa. What has Joab got against men whose name begins with A? We may be wondering. But beyond that, this may remind astute Bible readers of another left-hand killer. Do you remember Ehud, the man who killed the fat Moabite king Eglon in the belly with his double-handed, left-handed sword. 
We're told the sword is a foot and a half long because Eglon was so fat. And that was in Judges 3. And all these details are meant to remind us of this pattern going back to the time of the Judges. And the point of all this is that against David's best will, his best wishes, his best intentions, that terrible violent streak, that violent way of doing things is reasserting itself in David's kingdom. Joab is seeking to advance the kingdom man's way, not God's way. And it's man's way that is winning. David back in Jerusalem is not strong enough or good enough or powerful enough to stop him. But what does stop Joab is the biggest surprise of the passage. The scene now shifts again and we return to the pursuit of Sheba and things are not going well for this antichrist. Verse 14, Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel Beth Maka and through the entire region of the Berites who gathered together and followed him. All the troops with Joab came and besieged Sheba in Abel Beth Maka. They built a siege ramp up to the city and it stood against the outer fortifications. Now, the town of Abel Beth Maka is in the far north of Israel, about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. So to picture this, if you were trying to take over the, king, the, the, the throne of England, maybe back in the Tudor times or something like this, this would be like being holed up in Carlisle Castle. This is not, not where you want to be if you're trying to take over the throne of England, a long way from Jerusalem. In addition, notice that his support, which in verse 2 was described as all the men of Israel, has now dropped off, verse 14, to the Berites, that is his immediate family clan. So he's in Carlisle Castle, and he's just got his own family around him. Things are not looking good. Worst of all, his hiding place has been rumbled by the relentless Joab, who just happens, as we know from chapter 11 and 12, to be an expert in siege warfare. And so it looks like Joab, along with this whole city, is just going to be bulldozed by Joab. That's the way he's going to win. But it's at this point that a surprise enters the narrative. A wise woman... Verse 16, while they were battering the wall to bring it down, a wise woman called from the city. This is not what Joab was expecting. Again, repetition. There have been other times when a wise woman has intervened into the violent world of men. You may think of Abigail, for example, in 1 Samuel 15, who stopped an enormous amount of bloodshed with her wise words. There's a bit of a pattern here. But notice that what the narrator stresses more than the fact that she is a woman is that she speaks. She initiates a conversation with David's commander. And we're given this in, in this incredible kind of almost poetry. Listen, listen. Tell Job to come here so I can speak to him. He went towards her and she asked, are you Joab? I am, he answered. She said, listen to what your servant has to say. I'm listening, he said. 
This is a remarkable little episode, isn't it? Joab, the man of action, the great warrior who thinks nothing about stabbing someone to death, in the midst of what he does best, throwing up siege ramps against the city, no doubt busily giving all sorts of orders to his troops, suddenly finds himself arrested, stopped in his tracks by the voice of this woman who forces him to listen. Now, what does she say? Well, let's look carefully at her words. They're very, very significant. First, she quotes what appears to be a traditional proverb about the saying. It's a kind of a little piece of folk wisdom. Verse 18, long ago they used to say, get your answer at Abel, and that settled it. In other words, she's, she's making a claim about this city. You know, certain cities are famous for certain products. Blackpool, uh, famous for rock. Uh, Kendall, mint cake. Uh, I was trying to think what Lancaster is famous for, food-wise. Greg's, maybe. Um, <laughs> get your wisdom from Abel. So she's saying, Job, Job, if you batter the walls of this building down, do you, do you know what you're up against? You're up against a, a city full of wisdom. But her speech gets more remarkable. Listen to what she says next, verse 19. We are the peaceful and faithful in Israel. You are trying to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Unlike Sheba, who was branded a troublemaker in verse 1, and unlike Joab himself, the people of this city are faithful and peaceful, both key words in the book. They do not deserve the Joab treatment. This is God's people. And the city itself is the mother in Israel. This is the only time that phrase is used of a city in the whole Bible. This city is a, a source of life in Israel, a mother. If Job destroys this city, he'll be one of the murderers of a source of life in Israel. But not only that, motherhood, where does motherhood take you back in the books of Samuel? It should take you back to the very beginning. Because the very the beginning of the story was when God heard the prayer of a childless woman and, and gave that woman, the child, Samuel, why did he do that? Because the word of God was rare in those days, 1 Samuel 3. And so these associations taking us back to the beginning are showing us what really has been at the heart of this conflict all along. Here is a battle between the word and force. Here is a battle between wisdom and folly. Here is a battle between God's way and man's way. But the real clincher is the last line of her appeal. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? Did you notice this is the only mention of God in the whole chapter? The Lord's inheritance, that is, the people of God. This is what the books of 1 and 2 Samuel have all been about. This is what the kingdom of God is for. In the very process of trying to save the kingdom, Joab is in danger of destroying the kingdom. And finally, I want you to notice that the woman is speaking straight out of Hannah's songbook. 1 Samuel 2, do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. 
The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled around with strength, it is not by strength that one prevails, but he will give strength to his king. So you see how significant this is? Right at the end of the story, here is the wisdom of Hannah's song coming back again. Here is the voice of peace that pierces the violence and the world of men and politics. Here is a reminder that there is another way. There is another power at work in the world, and that is God's word. And can you see how it brings a choice, a life and death choice for the nation? Are we going to go the way of Joab and brute force, the way of the sword, or the way of wisdom and the word of God? So you can see right at the end that the kingdom hangs on a balance, doesn't it? God has promised that David's sin will mean a sword will never depart from his house, but this woman is offering a morsel of hope that the whole kingdom need not be destroyed by a sword if they come back to God's way, if they come back to his word. Well, the words have their desired effect, and Joab backs down from his attack, and he identifies Sheba as the quarry who must be killed, verse 21. The woman agrees to save the city by surrendering Sheba. And so one man has died for the many. The rebellion is over. One more antichrist put down. Verse 22. So he sounded the trumpet, and his men dispersed from the city, each returning to his home. And Joab went back to the king in Jerusalem. Notice how the story ends. The kingdom is secure thanks to Joab. He has done what he set out to do, but not quite in the way he set out to do it because of the woman's voice. And so the last phrase tells us that once again David is the king in Jerusalem. But what kind of kingdom are we left with? Thirdly then, the unfulfilled promise of God. The story of David's kingdom, his establishment in Jerusalem, his exile due to Absalom's rebellion, his return has been the subject of this long section of the book from chapter 9 all the way through to chapter 20. And that story now ends with those words at the end of verse 22, David is king in Jerusalem. And as I said before, the remainder of the book kind of form a, a thematic reflection, a theological postscript on the whole. But this is the end of the story itself. Which leaves, you'll notice, that little paragraph in 23 to 26. Let's read it again. Joab was over Israel's entire army. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Kerithites and Pelethites. Adoniram was in charge of forced labor. Jehoshaphat, son of Elihud, Ehilud, was recorder. Shiva was secretary. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira the Jairite was David's priest. Now, as you're doing your morning Bible reading, you come to a passage like this and you easily skim over it. It looks very unimportant, very uninteresting, apart from to the kind of academic historian. It's not part of the story itself. It's just a kind of a little summary of the bureaucracy, the administration. It's just a list of officials and their roles. And as we are used to by now, the narrator makes no comment on what it all means. And this is why, as you read the Bible, you've got to develop a good memory, haven't you? You've got to remember what's gone before, because the narrator always uses repetition to make his point. 
And we'll see the significance of this paragraph when we compare it to a similar paragraph at the beginning of David's kingship. So if you just leave a finger in chapter 20 and flip back with me to chapter 8, we'll see it there, chapter 8, 15 to 18. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Joab, son of Zerai, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Eliud, was recorder. Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, son of Abiathar, were priests. Sarai was secretary. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Kerithites and Pelethites. And David's sons were royal advisors. Now, you'll have spotted maybe some differences between the two, but let me put them on the table. Don't often use tables, but I think this one's going to be helpful. There are some minor differences. I'm not against tables, by the way. I know some Bible study leaders adore them. Um, But here's a helpful uh, table. There are some minor differences that are not so important. Sariah, the secretary, has been replaced by uh, Shiva. That's the first difference. Abiathar has replaced his son Abimelech as priest and Ira the Gyrat has placed David's son as personal priest, whatever that means. There's a second load of changes, and these changes are simply due to the passing of the years, nothing more than that. And then some things you'll have noticed have not changed at all. Okay, so we've got some minor changes, got no changes, but there are three things that have changed that are very revealing. Firstly, notice that Joab is still over the army, but even more. David has tried to demote him and sideline him. He has replaced him with Amasa, his cousin, and then with Abishai, his brother. But in both cases, Joab has taken back control, one by brutally murdering the first, the other by force of personality. And so right at the end of the book, despite all David's efforts to put Joab in his place, to control him, Joab is ruling Israel as the mighty man. And the second paragraph tells us that by emphasizing it, he is in command of all the army of Israel. And the problem with that is that Joab represents the way of the world, the way of force rather than humility. Joab represents humanity, even Jewish humanity, God's people, that have not listened to Hannah's song. That's the problem. The second difference is this additional office holder of Adoram, elsewhere known in the Bible as Adoniram, who we are told is in charge of forced labor, that is, slavery. This is all we're told at this point, but it's a new element in the life of Israel. And in fact, as you pursue the story into 1 Kings, you'll see that this actually leads to the nation's downfall. If you follow the story, you'll see that under Adoniram, Solomon constrips thousands of slaves to build the temple. This leads to the great discontent under his son Rehoboam, in in response to which he says, my father scourge you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions, which leads to another insurrection. And this is the time that Sheba's little ditty comes back. What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? And at that point, the nation splits. And so slavery in Israel, very significant. But the third difference is the most revealing, and that is what is not said in the second paragraph. 
Notice if you've still got you, you, it open, 8.15, we're told that David reigned over all Israel, doing what is right and just for all his people. That is how his reign began. But now at the end, there's nothing that corresponds to those words. Those words, just and right, can no longer describe David's kingdom. And so where does that leave us? Well, it tells us that right at the end of the story, we are back where we began. With scenes increasingly reminiscent of the book of Judges, where we were told that Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit, where chaos and misery reigns, left-handed belly stabbings, rape, murder, concubines, heads cut off and thrown from city walls. After this long story, we are back in the bad old days, the days when Israel had no king. Israel does have a king, but that king has lost control of the forces of evil that threaten the kingdom. The evil and violence and chaos that is so central to the way human beings operate is too strong for him. He is not good enough or powerful enough to overcome it. And so here is the sad ending to the story of the kingdom of David. His kingdom has become like all the kingdoms of the world, where God is hardly mentioned, where might and strength rules. And so we are a long way, aren't we, from the Song of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2, in which the bows of the warriors are broken by the Lord, and those who humble themselves and trust God's king are lifted up we're a long way from the promise of 2 Samuel 7. We are still a long way from the kingdom of God. Well, as we conclude this series, I want to leave us with three lessons, therefore, to take away, to reflect on, and to put into practice. These are three ways that I think we will see the world differently if we have understood and heard this book well. Three threads that begin in Hannah's prayer, back in 1 Samuel 2, and come to a climax in 2 Samuel 20. Number one, don't put your hope in man. Don't put your hope in man. One of the things the uh, discussion panel touched on, wasn't it? One of the great lessons of the, book in, uh, of the books of Samuel is that hope in human leaders in human kingdoms is a lost cause. And that is because of sin. And we need to remember this and take it to heart. It's an important way that Christians view the world, that man is a lost cause. It might sound cynical to say that, but this is one of the great lessons of the book. Ever since the first man and woman rebelled against God's, God's kingship, we are to realize that we live in a broken world that cannot be fixed by us, that cannot be fixed by our ingenuity or skill or wisdom. And if we think that it can, we will always be disappointed. Because even the best of them, even David, cannot do it. Now I think this goes for just about anything human beings try to do. Any organization, any institution, any idea, any system, any philosophy, any invention, any structure that offers a solution to the curse of the world will only ever be a sticking plaster, will only ever be a compromise because human institutions are inherently unstable because of sin. 
We are unsafe with the world. And you can see this time after time in human history. How economies and nations <coughs> can be ruined by greed and corruption. Whole societies degraded because of depravity. Marriages and families ruined because of unfaithfulness. Everything we build from nations to bridges to football tournaments can collapse suddenly and cause great suffering and sadness because of sin. And we need to arm ourselves. We need to know this. And of course, in Samuel, there is a specific note of warning to human leaders. Leaders are good, God-given gifts. We need leaders. We should not indulge in the world's cynicism about leadership in general. But one of the great lessons of the books of 1 and 2 Samuel has been that human leaders will let us down in the end. Even the best leaders will not be able to bring about the righteousness and justice we crave. Some human leaders make the mistake of following the method of Joab, which Sam was talking about earlier, wasn't he? Even with good intentions, brute force to get what you want, the means justify the end. And this is true for political leaders, of course, but it's true for leaders in our communities, in schools, universities, workplaces, families. It's true for leaders in church as well. Human leaders will disappoint. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have the highest standards for leaders. But if we've heard the books of Samuel, we will, we will find ourselves always longing for a leader who is better than David. That's the leader we should look to. A leader he himself prophesies in chapter 23, who rules over men in righteousness, in the fear of God, like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. That leader is Jesus, son of David, the true servant leader who gives himself to his people for their good, the one who did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Don't put your hope in man. The second lesson I hope we're going to take away from these books is make sure your hope is in the kingdom of God. Make sure your hope is in the kingdom of God. See, if we have listened to these books, if we've listened to Hannah's prayer and what has gone on since we will have a view of the world which takes God with utter seriousness, and that changes everything. As well as having realistic expectations of this world, the inverse of that is that we really will have a solid hope in God's kingdom. So you see what I'm saying? So the first point is a little bit depressing, isn't it? In one sense. But it's real. But what is the inverse of that point is that Christians should be people who have a, a solid and equally real hope in the kingdom of God. Well, what does that mean in reality? What does it mean in practice? See, when we pray, your kingdom come, what are we talking about? Are we just talking about some kind of vague view of heaven? What do we think we mean when we say, your kingdom come? Well, this book has been given to partly answer that question because one of the ways we can get hold of it in our imaginations is to see this as the kind of the photographic negative of the kingdom that is to come. In David's kingdom, there was no righteousness and justice in the end, was there? Not much. And so the negative of that, the, the opposite of that is the kingdom of Jesus is going to be a kingdom where that is full of righteousness and justice. In David's kingdom, we saw these violated and abused women living out their lives as widows, 
in Jesus' kingdom, the violated and abused will be fully restored. Jesus' kingdom will be a place of joyful restoration. If David's kingdom is a place of tears and the unmendable consequences of sin, then Jesus' kingdom will be a place where the tears are wiped away and the consequences of sin are finally mended. The, the mess is finally unscrambled and put away forever. That's what the kingdom means. Jesus uses Isaiah 66 to describe it in his own work. He says, he will bind up the brokenhearted. He will proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He will, he will comfort all who mourn. Jesus will. He will provide for those who grieve. He, Jesus, will bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. He, Jesus, will bring the oil of gladness instead of mourning. He, Jesus, will clothe his people with a garment of praise instead of spare. So when we pray your kingdom come, it's not just a vague hope, is it? That is what we're talking about. Being clothed by Jesus with joy. And so can you see now those sad women in Jerusalem in the kingdom of God? Everything gets reversed. Those who are least, those who are last will be first. The hungry filled, 1 Samuel 2, 5. The poor raised, sat with princes. And that is why one of the great pictures the Bible gives us at the end of the world, so we can really grasp it, so we can really allow our, our imaginations to get hold of it, is a wedding supper. The wedding of the lamb coming to claim his bride. The husband, Jesus, who washes her, his bride clean with his own blood and presents her radiant to himself, achieved by his love on the cross and his shed blood. And so if you're a Christian this morning, do you actually believe this? Is that the solid, real hope that you have in your imagination? Because that's what this book is telling us. And do you preach it to yourself? Are you tempted sometimes to have, you know, someone said to me, is my wife, I may as well tell you that. She said, look, you can't just have a big pity party for yourself. Well, that's a very helpful way of putting it because that's exactly what I was doing. Life is hard, isn't it? Life can be very sad. But in the hardness, in the sadness, do you preach to yourself that kingdom is coming? Because if you don't, you're not thinking Christianly. And when you're tempted to give up, because this world is, quite frankly, so disappointing sometimes, do you preach to yourself the kingdom of God, this kingdom? Or is it just some vague hope at the back of your mind that you're going to go to heaven? And when your life is overwhelmed with anxiety, do you force yourself back to the gospel of Jesus and tell yourself that one day he will bind up the brokenhearted? He will clothe you with this garment of praise. That's what it means to pray the kingdom come. And sometimes... This is why it's helpful to have a wife who says things like that to you. Sometimes I have to tell myself, actually, that one of my problems is 
just a lack of thankfulness. A lack of thankfulness and a lack of trust that this is real. That I do believe the gospel. That Jesus is coming back for me. And I say this to myself and I say it to you. It is so easy to forget, isn't it? And so this morning, here is the encouragement of Hebrews 12, 28. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. Let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. There's all sorts of hard things in our world. But no Christian has a reason to fall into hopeless despair. And when you swing your legs out of bed in the morning for another day, what you are to do is to grasp hold of this promise and live in the light of it. I'm not saying that that's going to make you feel great, but it's going to keep you going for another day. To know that you are part of a broken world, and that is going to hurt. But you are heading for the kingdom of God, and that is brilliant. And so you can say with Paul in Philippians 3.12, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. That is the Christian life. Putting your hope in what is to come. Don't put your hope in man. Don't put your hope in man's achievements where those achievements be the achievements of science, education, money, relationships. Don't put your hope in those things. Put your hope in the kingdom of God and be thankful. But there's one last lesson we can take away from this book, and this is actually the most important one of all. Because we need to know that what I've been saying is real. We need to know that actually this isn't just an imaginary kingdom in the sky, that it's real. How can you know that? Well, the third lesson of the book, and the most important one of all, because this is where it all began, trust the word of God. Trust the word of God. See, we've seen in our narrative this unstable world, haven't we? Full of fickle, violent men, full of sad, damaged women, where even the best endeavors of man collapse in on themselves in this self-destruction, where unrighteousness and injustice reign, where lives spiral out of control, where this scrambled egg mess of sin is impossible to mend. Where can you turn in a world like that for security? Where can you go with absolute confidence? What can you grab hold of that will be an anchor into that next life? Well, the answer the book gives us is the sure and certain word of God. Because you may remember it's the word of God that has been driving thing, everything from the beginning. That word of Hannah's song in chapter 2. The theme of God who rules his world his way, who brings death and makes alive, who turns everything around. So the barren woman has seven children. To the promise of a perfect kingdom in chapter 7 to the promise of judgment in chapter 12, to the promise of that perfect king in chapter 23, all of it has been driven by the word of God. It's the word of God that has been in control all the time. 
even when things are at their very worst, the word of God has been driving it forward. Because remember how it began in chapter 3. The word of God was rare in those days. And now we have this woman come back and remind us to hold on to the word of God. And for us, the word is not rare. For us, the word is plentiful. Because we have the Bible. We have the whole revelation of Jesus Christ. And therefore, the message of Samuel is the announcement that in Jesus, the kingdom has finally come. The gospel of God is the call to forsake the kingdoms of men with their fragility and failure, violence and injustice, and come into the everlasting kingdom of God by submitting your life to God's king, Jesus, son of David. This is the gospel of Samuel. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is the gospel. The question is, are we listening? Well, let's pray that we will. Let's pray. Just give you a moment to reflect and speak to yourself, speak to God in your own heart, and then I'll, I'll lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not treated us as our sins deserve, but you have spoken to us by your sure and certain and plentiful word, so that we might not make the fatal mistake of trusting in this world for our joy, our comfort, our security and meaning, but that we might cling to the solid hope of the gospel of Jesus, who alone conquers sin, who alone will wipe away every tear and who will bring us, as we trust in him, into your eternal kingdom of justice, righteousness, peace and joy. In his name we pray. Amen.